Christmas 2018. Can you believe that the year is over already? You got a week and then you're in the next year. Tonight I'm going to finish a series that we started four weeks ago called We Three Kings. We started talking about the three wise men who went and saw Jesus at his birth. Then we talked about Israel's three greatest kings. You have Saul, their first king. You have David, the one who loved God above everything else. You have Solomon, the wisest king. And tonight, we're going to talk and then bring this whole thing together, talking about Jesus, the ultimate king, the one who rules and reigns over everything, yet he becomes poor and humble and was born in a feeding trough for animals. Uh, I was reading this article by Tim Keller. I know, shocker if you know me. That, uh, But at the end of each year, he talks about how all these periodicals and magazines do these various lists of questions that they ask people. Who's the most beautiful? Who's the most popular? Who's got the most money? And one of them was, who are the five most influential people who have ever lived? And so I thought about that. And, and this is my list. And it's no particular order, so don't judge me on this. Uh, but Buddha, Mohammed, uh, Hitler... I think that even though we, we hate the guy, right, but it's still, he still informs politics today. When you have someone that you don't like, they eventually come to the place of you're just like Hitler. So we still use him. Uh, Jesus, and then I would say, because it's Christmas, Santa Claus, right? And I mean Nicholas and Myra, Saint, Saint Nick. These are people who had a view that changed the world and some not for the better. And whatever you think about Christianity or Jesus, you have to admit that Jesus would be on anybody's short list of influential people of history. Jesus elevates the status of children to what we know today. He raises the equality of men and women. He changes our view of the poor, the marginalized, the discarded. Universities, hospitals, orphanages all came out of the movement centered on worship of him. The single most widely recognized symbol in the world today is a cross because it was the instrument of his execution. It is impossible for us to even imagine Western culture and history without Jesus. History is even divided up around his birth. There are other people who changed the world. You could look at them and at the end of their life and say, yeah, something's going to be different after them. But no one would have thought that and predicted that about Jesus. Jesus is going to die in an obscure, tiny, unknown part of the world, followed by a few societal rejects who'd be scattered the day after his death. And if you were to go to Vegas at that time, which wasn't there, but if you were, and place odds on whose influence would last longer, Caesar, Herod, Pilate, the whole Roman Empire, or Jesus, nobody would put their money on Jesus because no one would have even heard about him. And yet today, 2,000 years later, we give our kids names like Peter, Paul, Luke, James, Aaron, Mark, Michael, Mary, and John, and names our dogs and pizza places things like Nero and Caesar. (laughs) Second interesting list was one that year where they asked, who are the people who thought they were God? Who believed that they were divine? Because that can cause a lot of problems. I mean, you might have a kid like that, or a boss like that, or a spouse like that. If you have a, if you have a cat, they definitely think that they're God in, in your life. We know people who think that they are God have serious issues, and no one wants to be around them. Most people who walk around thinking they're God suffer from this delusion that keeps them from impacting the world in any meaningful way whatsoever. Now, I'm going to show you a few pictures. This is Enri. Uh, Enri, that's I-N-R-I, by the way. That's the sign that hung above Jesus when, when he died, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So he calls himself Jesus, or Enri. He lives in Brazil. And here his disciples will push him around on their rolling pedestal. He's got about a dozen of them, most women. And they live with him full time in his walled compound, which is protected with barbed wire and electrical fencing, like Jesus would do. Okay? <laughs> this is Matsuo Matayoshi. He goes by the name Jesus, or you can call him the only God. 
Uh, He lives in Tokyo and sermonizes for a seat in the Japanese parliament. He wrote some scriptures. They are titled, How the Second Coming of Jesus Christ, the One True God, Jesus Matayoshi, Will Change Japan and the World. This is Vissarion. Vissarion was born Sergei Torop. He had a revelation about the time the Soviet Union collapsed that he was Jesus Christ reborn. So he starts the Church of the Last Testament. He has at least 5,000 followers. Many of them live with him in several utopian eco-villages throughout the Siberian woods. And he praises vegetarianism and UFOs. Now, (laughs) we all feel the same way about these people when you look at them, that there's something a bit off. They're out of touch with reality. And they show up to your house asking you to be a disciple. You would politely or not so politely close the door, maybe call the police so they wouldn't leave. But if you look at these two lists, those that change the world and those that claim to be God, there is no overlap except in the person of Jesus. Jesus changes the world and yet claims to be God and king. And the crazy thing is Jesus was so humble. In the ancient world, humility was not a virtue that people sought after. Aristotle once said, the great-souled man should not stoop to humble himself. Rome itself was built on status and rank. Plutarch, who was a Roman, he wrote a book that was titled, On Praising Oneself Inoffensively. That would be like a bestseller in our day, or at least like a most listened to podcast, right? Oh, I'm going to listen to that. How do we even come to say today that humility has value, that the greatest leaders are marked by their strength and humility? Macquarie University, one of the top universities in Australia, their ancient history department did a research study where they tried to find out where this value of humility actually came from. And what they said is this, the modern fondness, modern Western fondness for humility almost certainly derives from the peculiar impact on Europe of the Judeo-Christian worldview. That is not a religious conclusion. This is a historical finding. Humility grew from a movement because we follow a God and a King, Jesus, who said, he who wants to be great must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, did not come to be served but to serve. These words spoken by a man who believed himself to be God and the one and only king. And this is the beauty of who God is. He is king of kings. John Piper once said, Jesus Christ is the ruler of all kings and presidents and chiefs and premiers and governors and prime ministers. Jesus holds this office by virtue of who he is. Colossians 1, 15 to 17 tells us he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things that were created were created. And everything holds together in him. And Jesus has a name that is above every single name. And one day every knee will bow to Jesus. But it's important for us to understand what that actually means. Him as a king and kingdom and yet the humility of that. If you don't know this, king and kingdoms have been around for a very long time. Uh, The word king is a title. Kingdom is under that which the king rules. Technically, the word that we use for king today, it's a contraction of a word that means ruler and family coming together. Now, we know our word king has been around a long time. Uh, All the way back in the 1400s, it was used for chess with the king piece. In 1560 is the first time it was recorded on playing cards. In 1820, it's the first time someone played checkers and said, king me. Okay, that's when that was. We, we now use the word for something that means dominant or large, like we have the king crab and the king snake and the scary king cobra. We now even call big candy king size. Did you get your Kit Kat when you went and saw the movie? The king size. Have you ever wondered historically, though, who the first king actually was? Well, I believe in Jesus, so it's a no-brainer. Huh? There, no. 
If you look through you know, history and stuff, there were tribal rulers and kings before written language was ever invented. And when there's no written language, legends all you know, pop up around certain kings. And all these early tribes looked at their king in a certain way. There was a hierarchy to it. And at the top, they would have certain gods. These cultures are all polytheistic, meaning they believed in many gods. Under this hierarchy of gods, there would then be the king of whatever country or whatever area where this king ruled. He is the only one made in the image of the gods. Now, underneath the king, there was the court. Uh, this would be the, the officials and the priests reported to the king. And underneath them would be artisans and merchants and craftspeople and academics. And underneath them would be a large group made up of peasants and slaves. Most of us would be peasants and slaves. And there's not many people underneath peasants and slaves except for those in boy bands and those who can't use the roundabout. That's it. In 3100 BC, Narmir becomes the first king of Egypt and and starts the first dynasty. He calls himself God on the earth. Now, some ancient kings were ruled by absolute power. Others were limited by councils. But what everyone did in these ancient cultures was saw and treated the king as divine or semi-divine. The king was understood to be the only one who was made in the image of the God who created the king. And this is one of the ways kings kept power, even when they were terrible kings. So God steps into humanity, and God needs to reveal himself because humanity is so lost without him. And so God reveals to us who he is and who we are. And in Genesis 1.27, we read, So God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. The word for image here is this word called sulam, and it's, this, and it's most likely borrowed from all these cultures around Israel. It's not a Hebrew word, because what God wants people to know what he is doing in humanity and what he has done, so he uses this word. It's important because only a country's king was thought to be made in the image, the sulam of the God. This is the dividing line between the king and everyone else. Peasants and slaves were not made or thought to be made in the image of God. And so God reminds everyone that everyone is made in his image. The writer of Genesis deliberately uses language here that puts God in a royal role. Let there be light, and there was light. God reigns by royal decree and proclamation. And so Genesis shows that God is not only a sovereign king, but he is good, and he is wise, and he is generous, and he delights in his creation. And in the image of God, God created all human beings. And this is the single most world-changing statement about human dignity, value, equality, and worth ever recorded. God reveals himself as a king, speaks the truth that has affected the entire human race ever since. The human race now has a different understanding of itself because its true king spoke into our existence. Now imagine what that does in the hearts of peasants and slaves be told that not just the king, but you too are made in the image of the one great God. Then God calls this people to become a community where they treat each other like everyone was made in the image of God. But the problem comes that people like to be ruled and some people like power, so you have to come up with some other way for a king to have his divine power. Now today, one of the most beloved legends is King Arthur. Some movies do it right. Some not so much. But the author adaptations all center around this legendary sword called Excalibur. Sometimes it's a crazy woman swimming in a lake that hands it out. Sometimes it's, it's in a rock. But this sword bestows magical, some would say divine authority on the one who possesses it to rule the country. See, because we're all now made in the image of God, in many king legends, there now has to be a thing, a bloodline, a power, an artifact that give people the right to be king. By the way, do you know who was the roundest knight at uh, King Arthur's round table? Circumference. It's a dad joke. All right. 
In 535 BC, Servius Tullius becomes king or what was a king at that time of Rome at that time. Legends and his name suggest that he was actually born a slave. Now, sources claim that he was actually a son of a princess captured and sold into slavery, but others suggest that this was the Roman elite trying to mask their embarrassment of being ruled by a commoner. But anyway, legends say he was destined for greatness from childhood. Why? Well, his head, when he slept, had a tendency to burst into divine flames. We call this Ghost Rider Baby, okay? (laughs) Boom, king material. Now, today, historians point out that he was more likely just a hothead, and this was a way to justify it. In 246 BC, Liu Bang becomes the emperor of the Han Dynasty in China. According to legend, his birth was marked by a great storm and the mysterious appearance of this spectral dragon that hovers over his bed. As he gets older, Liu Bang starts to find work as a government official, but he spends most of his time drinking and chasing women. The legends say though, that he never paid for his booze because whenever he passed out, this spectral dragon would reappear over his head, and that's good for a customers, so nobody ever charged him a fee. He goes on and rises to become king. Swords and stones, flaming heads, magic dragons, all these surround these people as legends to make them larger than life. Houston Smith, who wrote the classic textbook about world religions, he says, in reality, during the history of the whole human race, there have only been two people whose impact was so unusual and great that people's questions would not have been, who are you in respect to identity, but what are you? What type of being are you that the world is changed around you? Are you human or divine? One of them was the Buddha, and one of them was Jesus. But interestingly, that question and the responses from Jesus and Buddha would be totally different. If you approached the Buddha and said, are you a god? He would quickly tell you, no, I'm not. Don't worship me. But if you asked Jesus, he would say, I am the only god. Yes. Think about this logically. We know Jesus was humble, even while claiming to be our king. And he did things no one else ever did. And the worshiping of Jesus wasn't just at his birth and infancy with shepherd and wise men. As Jesus grew up, people continued to not just want to admire him or emulate him, but to worship him. Now, I know you're probably wondering how this doesn't make Jesus into some type of weird, crazy cult leader hippie, because today people worship a whole lot of weird stuff. In a village called Chotilla in India, there is a motorcycle encased in glass. It is set upon a shrine, and it's a sacred artifact they call the Bullet Baba. Now, they've been worshiping this for about 30 years. The motorcycle belonged to a man named Ambana who crashed it on a dangerous highway back in 1988. The police took it down to their station, but the next morning it reappeared at the crash site. And so someone said the simplest and most logical explanation is, of course, that Ambana's soul had returned to the world of the living, taking the form of the motorcycle. That's what you would naturally assume. Everyone in town has now spent the last 30 years worshiping this as a god. And if you go there, you can buy incense sticks and holy scars and photographs of Ambana because a good god apparently makes you money. Okay? People gather around the motorcycle and they sing hymns of worship to this motorcycle. Now in Matthew 2.2, 2, wise men go to King Herod in the capital city of Jerusalem and they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They come because they want to worship him. The wise men go to the perceived place of power, to the perceived king, Herod the Great, because kings are supposed to be great in this city. Shouldn't this coming king be enshrined in glass, sitting behind a round table with his head on fire, holding a magic sword? But that's not where Jesus is born. He is born in a manger because his parents were too poor and didn't have enough connections to stay anywhere but where the animals stayed. God could have had his son born to anyone. God could have been a Herod. God could have been a Kennedy. God could have been a Hendrix. Jimmy, okay? 
the wise men. These foreigners show up and they fall down and worship him. This account in the Bible is written by a monotheistic Jew named Matthew who would shy away from anything that spoke of heresy or paganism, and yet he fully embraces people worshiping Jesus. And that is very highly unusual behavior because no matter how cute you are as a baby and how much your mother loves you, odds are she never encouraged anyone to worship you as God Almighty. Hallmark does not sell cards that say congratulations on giving birth to God. Okay, it just does not happen. At Jesus' death and resurrection, you have a disciple named Thomas. We get the term doubting Thomas from him. And Thomas is so skeptical that he says he wants to put his fingers in the nail holes that pierced Jesus' hands and put his fist in the side where the spear went or he won't believe. And if Jesus is a normal egomaniac king, he would most likely have been offended by this. How dare someone ask that of me? But Jesus shows up and he has Thomas inspect the scars on his body. And Thomas falls down to worship Jesus. In John 20, 28, Thomas says, my Lord, like my king and my God. Too often, when we think about King Jesus, we think he's like British royalty. He's like a figurehead. We must begin to see him as he truly is, the king of kings and the Lord of lords that reigns over everything. But Christmas sometimes makes that really hard for us because we forget that Jesus was born so humbly. We forget because of how he came. Luke 2.12 says, This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. You do not get swaddling clothes at Macy's. The rags a peasant would put their baby in. That will be a sign for you. Jesus comes into the world in swaddling clothes. We know there's no room in the inn. Couldn't God in the flesh make his head catch on fire, pull swords from stones, breathe spectral dragons, or at least get his parents a room at the Motel 6? Couldn't he do that? Jesus will go out of the world the same way. He will wear the uniform of a slave. He will take off his outer garment. He will wash his disciples' feet. That's what a slave did. And then Jesus goes to the cross, and he dies for us. See, Jesus doesn't come in all the trappings of a king. He doesn't come trying to grasp power because he knows all the power is his anyway. What Jesus does is he comes to us in our lost state, where we are to return us into his kingdom. And I think the way Jesus comes, maybe God wants to remind us that if we have trouble in our lives and we don't know where tomorrow will take us, we don't know how we'll survive or where we will live, or even if you're just disappointed with the ways the holidays are beginning to turn out, the truth is Jesus has come for us. Matthew 121 says, She will bear a son. She'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus doesn't come full of superpowers. Jesus comes humbly, relying on God's spirit, completely vulnerable. And I don't know if you understand this, but usually when someone dies, even a king, their impact on the world immediately begins to recede. But Jesus inverts this trajectory. A hundred years after his death, 500 years after his death, a thousand years later, 2,000 years later, there are more followers in more places than ever. And I think you want a third list from where we started. How about peoples whose lives have been changed by Jesus? People whose hearts have been opened by Jesus because for 2,000 years on every continent and every city and every family, there are addicts who have stopped using because of Jesus and adulterers who stopped infidelity because of Jesus and racists who stopped hating because of Jesus and slave traders who stopped trading because of Jesus and thieves who stopped stealing because of Jesus. If you ask them why, they would say, King of kings, Lord of lords, has come to rescue me. His life, birth, death, resurrection. God has come to seek relationship with us, and lives are still being changed because of King Jesus. 
I like this story that John Ortberg tells. He, he went to visit his mom in Chicago a while back. And while he's there, he goes to get his hair cut at this place that is owned by a couple named Pam and Jim. So Jim starts asking him all kinds of questions about Jesus. So when he's done, he says to his mom, hey, next time you're down there, you should ask Pam about Jesus. And his mom said, she doesn't want to know or talk about Jesus. And he said, trust me, I know, I'm a professional. I think they want to know. So next time his mom is there, she's getting her hair cut, and she starts praying to God. God, I know Pam doesn't want to hear about you, but if she does, give me a sign. So Pam starts to cut her hair and says, I hear you and your husband lead a Bible study because my husband and I come. She took that as a sign. (laughs) Now, Pam's story is a sad one. When she was little, her dad was Jewish and her mom was Catholic. Her dad would take her to the synagogue on Saturdays. When she got home, her mom would send her to her room and make her pray her rosary and ask for forgiveness for going to the synagogue. She said she grew up hating Jesus. She grows older. She begins to deal with life by drinking, and pretty soon she's a full-blown alcoholic in and out of five different marriages. And at one point, she says, you know, I just can't function like this. So she decides to get sober. She goes to AA. One of the steps in AA is you have to acknowledge a higher power. And she refuses to call this higher power God or Jesus. So she decides to call her higher power Ralph. (laughs) She turns her life and her will over to Ralph. And then one day at an AA meeting, this inebriated guy walks in, throws up all over everyone. They clean him up. And when it's his time to share, he says, hi, I'm an alcoholic and my name is Ralph. And she says, that is not my God. So she prays this prayer. And she says, God, please reveal yourself to me. And that prayer leads her to Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the one who changed the human race, and he still does. G.K. Chesterton once wrote this. He said, It has never been quite enough to say that God is in his heaven and all is right with the world, since the rumor is that God has left his heavens to set it right. Tonight when you came in, most of you got this little trinket, okay? It's not the most expensive thing you've ever gotten in your life, okay, so don't think it's like... But this right here, it's a crown. It's a little crown. And it's to remind you of who Jesus is, that he is king of kings and we are not. And even if this thing breaks or turns your hand green if you're holding on to it for too long, <laughs> decide one day you have to throw it away. When you look at this, remember who Jesus is, king of kings and lord of lords. And guys, maybe tonight you are someone who needs to pray that prayer. God, reveal yourself to me. Draw me to you, not just as a baby in a manger, but king over all, because he is the real and only true king. And Christmas is about how God came for our rescue as our king, stepping into human flesh to rescue and save us. Now, tonight, we do have communion at the communion tables. And if you would like to, I would invite you to take communion. It's where you break the cracker that reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me to bring us back into relationship with him again because our God is good and our God is holy and our God is true and our God is a king who comes to rescue us. And tonight, if you feel God pulling on your heart, pray that prayer. God, reveal yourself to me. Teach me who you are. Then allow him to begin to draw you to him because he is good. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us who you are, that you remind us of your kingship and how you reign over everything. But we would also remember the humility in which you came and that you call your people to also be humble. Father, have us be a people who are drawn to you by what you have done, that we would take this holiday known as Christmas, where we celebrate your birth, 
But we remember how that is also tied to your death and ultimate resurrection to bring us as a people back in again. That we have been given the greatest gift we can ever imagine. And that is the gift of you. So teach us to live out this good news of the greatness of who you are, our King of Kings, who has come to rescue and save us. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.